I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to the fifth Random Clippings mini-episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. This is episode 134 of the podcast, and I'm your host, Tiffany Clark. I love doing these random clippings episodes because sometimes I find stories I want to tell in the regular episodes and they're either not long enough to be a full additional history story or else they weren't printed in newspapers on a famous day. I have a huge collection of these mini articles that I've clipped and stored for an occasion just like this one. Some are funny and some are sad and some are shocking, but I think you'll like them all. For today's first random clipping, I'm taking an article from the Wilkes-Barre Record out of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. This article was printed on July 4th, 1938. The headline pretty much says it all with this one. It says, Fireworks hit an oven, explode before 4th. One day, Mrs. Coate, who lived in Manchester, New Hampshire, bought a bunch of fireworks for the family's 4th of July celebration. Maybe it was something they did every year or maybe it was the first time they'd ever splurged on that kind of entertainment. Either way, Mrs. Coat needed a place to hide the fireworks, so that they'd be a surprise for the rest of the family on the holiday. And she decided the oven in the kitchen would be the best place to hide them. I can only assume that she did all the cooking and probably figured no one would open the oven. Well, she was wrong. Her husband Alfred came along, lit a match, and tossed it into the fire underneath the stove. When the oven started to get warm, so did all of those fireworks. First, one exploded, and then two, and then three, (laughs) before poor Alfred could figure out what was happening. The oven and all the fireworks exploded all at once, just like a 4th of July fireworks finale. For this next random clipping, I'm going to back up in time a few years from the last one and go to an article that was printed on April 6, 1909. This article comes from the Bisbee Daily Review out of Bisbee, Arizona, but the story actually took place in Tombstone, Arizona. This is the story of Fred Wayland. Fred and his brother had been arrested the year before and had been in prison ever since. Their crime? They'd been making and using fake $20 gold coins. Well, after that much time in prison, Fred was starting to go a bit stir-crazy. Or just plain crazy. The authorities were convinced that he was suicidal. And that if given the chance, he would take his own life. And I will say that the article just calls them the authorities. At this point in the story, I don't know if it was a prison warden or guards or a doctor, or someone else. But whoever it was, they had a grand idea to test their theory about Fred Whalen's sanity. First, they got a glass bottle and filled it full of plain water. Then they wrote the word poison on the bottle and left it in Fred's cell while he was out. Thinking they were so clever, the men then hid in a place where they could watch what would happen next. Sure enough, as soon as Fred went back into a cell, and saw the poison, he grabbed the bottle and drank it all. 
Well, that was all the proof the men needed, at least in their minds, to prove that Fred had lost his marbles. They called the doctor up, told him what had happened, and the doctor agreed that Fred was insane. So, they released him from prison and immediately locked him up in a nearby asylum instead. I'm no medical authority, but I can't help but think there might have been a better way to go about that whole thing. This next random clipping comes from the Chillicothe Gazette out of Chillicothe, Ohio. It was printed in that newspaper on August 7th, 1945, but I'm going to wait a minute to read the headline to you because the story has a twist, and as usual, the headline gives the twist away. This article might have been written in 1945, but it actually started back around the time of World War I. A man named John T. Bragg had been raised in the state of Ohio. He had a loving mother and father, and at least three sisters and one brother. When John was grown, he moved out west to work as a mining engineer. But when the United States entered World War I, John joined the military. John was first stationed at Fort Hayes in Columbus, Ohio, and his family communicated with him while he was there. He even had his photo taken while at Fort Hayes and sent that photo on to his family. But his turn to join the war overseas in France came, and he soon left. After that, his family didn't hear anything else from him. His parents and siblings all waited for a phone call, or a letter, or something. They waited, and waited, and waited. Still nothing. There was no word whatsoever from John. Eventually, the war ended, and those who had been serving in Europe started to come home. For some families, there were happy reunions. For others, there were funerals. John's family got nothing. He had simply disappeared, and nobody knew what his fate was. After a lot of time had passed, John's family resigned themselves to the fact that John must have died somewhere in France and that he would not be coming back. His father, Milton Bragg, eventually passed away. He'd spent a lot of time trying to track down his son, but died without finding success. Then, John's mother died too. It was said that her last words were thoughts about her missing son. Then, in August of 1945, more than 25 years after World War I had ended, everything changed for the Bragg family. Now might be a good time to read you this headline. It says, Missing Vet of World War I, found as Vet of World War II. One day, one of John's sisters suddenly got a telegram from the director of a marine hospital in San Francisco. The director told her that her brother, John T. Bragg, was a patient there. I can't even imagine how John's living siblings must have felt after receiving news like that. John explained that after World War I ended, he decided he wanted to stay in the military and make a career out of it. I have no idea why he didn't contact his family to tell them about that choice, or why he didn't ever come home for a visit, or why he didn't write letters. There was no indication of the family dynamics, so maybe they didn't get along, but the fact that everyone had looked for him for so long would make me think otherwise. Anyway, in April of 1942, Nearly three years before our article was printed, John was stationed in the Philippines when the Japanese overran the battlefield and he was captured and taken as a prisoner of war. When the United States Army came through in the spring of 1945, 
they liberated all of the prisoners. John was not in very good shape. By this point, he was 68 or 69 years old, and he was suffering from multiple medical conditions related to the lack of vitamins and good nutrition. The military quickly evacuated him to that hospital in San Francisco. After sitting in the hospital for a few months, John's mind started to think back to his years growing up in Ohio, and he started to wonder about his family finally. He sent a telegram to the post office of the town he used to live in, and luckily the postmaster was able to track down one of his sisters. John told her that he was waiting to get a train ticket, and then he would travel back home to Ohio, and he planned to spend his final days in his boyhood home. Wow. If I were John's siblings, I don't know if I would be extremely happy that my long-lost brother had been found, or unbelievably angry that he'd put my family through a two-and-a-half-decade trial. John lived for nearly 20 more years after this article was printed and passed away in Ohio in 1963. For my next random clipping, I'm taking an article from the Times Democrat out of New Orleans, Louisiana. It was printed on April 15, 1912, which you'll note is the same day the Titanic sunk. Now, I'm sure all of you have heard the myth that if you sing a note at a high enough pitch, you can break glass. Well, the lady in this story didn't quite do that, but what she did do was worse. I'm just going to read you this whole article because it's really short. The headline says, Reached High Note Dies Few Hours Later. The random clipping took place in Leavenworth, Kansas, and the article says, while singing a hymn in the church of which she has always been a member, Mrs. Ann Seif this morning strained herself in such a manner as to cause a cerebral hemorrhage, and she died at her home a few hours later. Mrs. Seif mounted to the choir loft as soon as the service commenced. She sang a solo and then joined in a song with other members of the choir. Later, when she had reached an unusually high note in another solo, she sank to the floor in a state of collapse. And that's the whole story. It kind of makes me glad that my voice falls into the alto range and I don't need to worry about straining to hit the super high notes. Okay, this next story was printed the same day as the Titanic sunk too. Apparently I clipped a lot of articles from that day. This article could have easily been long enough to be an additional history story, but I didn't use it. And since this is a random clippings episode, I'll try to water it down and keep it simple. The article was printed in the news journal out of Mansfield, Ohio. The headline simply says, Charles W. Morse. It's accompanied by a picture of the man, and it's surrounded by an ornate frame. If I didn't know any better, and didn't know who Charles W. Morse was, I might have just assumed that it was an obituary or something like that. Nope. And if you're thinking I'm going to tell you about the inventor of the Morse code, you're wrong too, because remember, that was Samuel Morse. Anyway, this article was telling about how the famous Charles W. Morse was taking a luxurious trip around southern Europe. Unfortunately, Charles had a bad health condition, and doctors had given him just six months to live. The article says, Instead of retiring to a sanitarium to hold on to life as long as possible, Mr. Morse is making the rounds of the fashionable resorts, restraining himself only in his manner of eating and drinking, Several physicians have declared that this strenuous mode of living 
will probably cut a month of the former financier's lease on life. So Charles Morse is given six months to live, and he decided to enjoy those months, even if it meant he might only get five months rather than lay around in bed and feel sorry for himself. It sounds like he made a pretty good choice, and you might even feel a bit sorry for the man, right? Well, now you need to know the rest of the story, the story that the newspapers didn't yet know about. You see, Charles W. Morse was very famous. He had once been known as the Ice King in New York because of the ice businesses he owned. Then he started a shipping company, and he did pretty good with that. He kept going bigger and bigger in the financial world, and eventually he controlled 13 different banks. He was a very wealthy man. But Charles committed fraud in an attempt to make even more money, and all of his scheming pretty much set off the panic of 1907, when the New York Stock Exchange lost 50% of its value in just a couple of weeks. For his fraudulent activities, Charles was sent to prison in 1910 in Atlanta, Georgia. And as a side note, he was in prison at the same time with another infamous fraudster who I talked about in one of the very first episodes of this podcast, Charles Ponzi, the guy that all Ponzi schemes are named after. Anyway, after being in prison for a short time, Charles W. Morse started to get sick. The prison doctors talked to him and examined him, and they came to the conclusion that he had Bright's disease, along with a few other things, and that he would definitely die if he stayed in prison much longer. Charles's lawyers and friends and even some journalists went to bat for him, and they convinced the President of the United States at the time, William Howard Taft, to issue a pardon. It worked, and Charles W. Morse was set free. So there was a lot more to this luxurious trip to Europe. Well, somehow it came out that Charles had faked his sickness so that he could get out of prison. He drank a mixture of soap and chemicals or something like that and produced the right symptoms to convince doctors he was dying. It was a serious embarrassment to the doctors who had examined him and President Taft who had thought he was pardoning a dying man. After his tour of Europe, Charles went back into the shipping business, but he didn't keep his nose clean and ended up in legal trouble once again. And the six months he'd been given to live turned into 21 more years of life before he passed away in January of 1933. This next story comes from the Chicago Tribune and was printed on October 31, 1938. It took place in Waukegan, Illinois. The headline cleverly rhymes in this one. It says, 200 ladies at door make slot machine seekers plenty sore. As we've learned many times in this podcast since I started it two years ago, not every woman who lived back in the day was prim and proper. They didn't always follow the rules. There was an investigator named Claude Warner, and he was bound and determined to crack down on all of the gambling going on around the area. One day, he got a tip that the women who belonged to the Moose Club had slot machines. And since the women were having their annual Halloween party, meaning there would be a big crowd, Claude decided it was the perfect time for a raid. He quickly got a search warrant, gathered four other constables to go with him, and then they hurried down to the Moose Club. 
except when the men tried to come in, the women wouldn't let them, despite the search warrant. The women insisted that it was a club for women only, and no man, no matter the circumstances, was going to be allowed inside the building. 200 of the women crowded together and blocked the entrance to the Moose Club. They stayed right where they were, talking to Claude and his men, for so long that by the time they finally gave in and moved, the room behind them had been cleared and the slot machines had been secreted away, probably out a back entrance or window or something like that. Claude Warner had to leave empty-handed. This next story actually comes from the same issue of the Chicago Tribune as the slot machine story. Again, it was printed on October 31st, 1938. And I really, really wish that you could see the picture accompanying this story. I'll do my best to describe it to you in a minute. Anyway, the headline says, A simple word makes he-men of schoolboys. Apparently, a high school teacher named Dean Dreyer, who taught at Commercial High School in Atlanta, Georgia, thought that the students in his class were too much like sissies. He decided to teach them how to be strong and how to be he-men. And the way he decided to do it was by the power of suggestion. He would tell the boys to think of themselves as masculine and to picture it in their head. Since they were high school age boys, and many were still going through puberty, he would have them repeat over and over and over the word the in as deep of a bass voice as possible. Dean Dreyer insisted that if they were consistent enough, they would train the rest of their voice to be that deep. All of that is pretty funny, but the most shocking part of this story is how Dean Dreyer taught the boys to overcome any shyness around girls. Remember, this is a high school class. The teacher had live models come into his classroom, dressed in nothing but swimsuits, and he would then have the boys drape fabric all over the girls. He insisted that it made the boys less awkward and more self-assured around the girls. What? The picture of a girl in a swimsuit with a boy draping scarf-like fabric on her in the newspaper is as awkward as they come. I can't help but think Dean Dreyer's unorthodox teaching methods might have ended up scarring the boys more than helping them. Not to mention the poor young girls who had to do the modeling and get groped in front of a group of teenage boys. And did I mention that Dean Dreyer was the first to demonstrate on the young girls of how to do it? So weird. The last random clipping I'm going to share with you today comes from the Bismarck Tribune out of Bismarck, North Dakota. The incident in the article took place in Miami, and it was written about in newspapers on June 18, 1983. Nowadays, people joke about the headlines that start by saying, Florida man, because they're usually pretty unbelievable. This story would fit right in with the modern headlines. It says, Demon weed causes chaos at county breakfast party. Apparently, the Dade County Courthouse employees decided to have a potluck breakfast one morning as a way of bonding and building morale. They did it early in the morning, before people were set to start their shifts for the day and there were all kinds of yummy food and treats there. Things like bagels and biscuits and ham and sausage, cookies and other treats. Everyone dug in, enjoying their breakfasts. But about an hour and a half into the party, one of the clerks started having symptoms of a heart attack, 
and the paramedics were called. While they were working on that clerk, a bunch of other people started getting sick. They were queasy. Their eyes were watering. They were sweating excessively, and a lot of them felt dizzy. Pretty soon, the courthouse was lined with ambulances, and employees were being wheeled out on stretchers as fast as the paramedics could work. One of those paramedics said that he had assigned someone to stand by the door to keep track of the number of sick people being taken out. But then that worker he assigned got sick too, and killed over, so the count got lost for a while. In the end, 23 people ended up being taken to the hospital. Everyone assumed it was food poisoning. And it was, in a way. But the poisoning had been intentional. Howard Penn, a 28-year-old clerk at the courthouse, had apparently decided to bring brownies laced with marijuana. Leaves, seeds, and all. I'm sure in his mind he was doing everyone a favor by donating some of his pot to the event designed to create bonding and boost morale. Instead, Howard ended up getting arrested and charged with possession and delivery of narcotic confections. The article doesn't actually say, but I'm guessing he got fired too. When his case went to trial a few months later in November, Howard's own lawyer even referred to him as the village idiot. The judge in this trial sentenced him to one day in jail for every one of his 23 victims. He had to pay a fine of $1,000 to the Miami Fire Rescue, who had come to help that day. He had to seek drug evaluation. And he had to complete 100 hours of community service annually during the three years he would be on probation. But the judge was very specific on what community service he had to do. You see, Howard was ordered to mow the lawns of his victims for those three years. I guess the moral of this story is to think twice about what you take when attending a Pollock dinner. Friends, thanks once again for joining me for today's mini-episode full of very random clippings. I actually have another random clipping for you, but since it's a picture that made me laugh, I can't exactly share it here. The picture was printed the same day the Titanic sunk, and it was a cartoon about the evil new dances that were starting to trend. I'll post the picture in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group. Hopefully it will make you laugh too. Then join me this coming Monday for an all-new full-size episode about an event that has a personal connection to me. Talk to you later.